If you would please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Our passage of study is going to be Romans 8, 33 through 36. Uh, if you were here with us last week, I said that today and next Sunday we'll begin to land the plane here in our verse-by-verse study of Romans 8. And so the wheels are down and we'll see if we can get it on the ground uh, next week. But it's been so good to dive into God's Word. Um, this morning, it's providential as we are in a season of thanksgiving that we will see the many wonderful and amazing gospel promises and gospel blessings that are for God's people for which we can give thanks to our Heavenly Father. So let's now look at those wonderful gospel blessings for which we can give thanks here in God's Word. I'm going to read uh, Romans 8, 31 through 36 for the whole context. Uh, If you need a Bible, there's some in the chairs in front of you. Page 945 will get you to Romans 8. This is God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word to us this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our study of his word. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And your word is truth. Sanctify us by the word of truth this morning. Make us more and more into the image of Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. What are you most afraid of? Think about that with me for a moment. What are you most afraid of? What is that one thing that you really fear that if it happens, that your life would be over, your life would be ruined? In our passage today, the Apostle Paul is starting to anticipate some of the fears, some of the concerns that the church might have in the Christian life. He is beginning to think about the type of things that want to rob us of our joy, that want to rob us of our surety, of our security in Christ. And so he lists some things that are normal, some, in some ways, everyday experiences of the Christian life. And so like a good pastor and shepherd that he is, he anticipates these things and wants the church to think about them in light of the amazing gospel promises that we have. Because there are these things in life 
that seek to beset us at any time, that seek to rob us of Christian joy and assurance. So how can we remain strong in the Lord and be faithful in the Christian life when Satan is attacking, when those fiery arrows are coming over and over and over? What do we do when the the world seeks to allure us with pleasures that are hard to resist? What do we do when our own conscience reminds us over and over that we are miserable sinners and tries to lie to us and tell us that God must not care about us or be concerned about what's going on in our life? Where do we go for help? What can we do when we find ourselves trapped in sin and misery and fear? Where can we go for strength, for comfort, for assurance? Well, the simple yet profound answer is we go to the gospel. We return to the gospel again and again and again. And that is what Paul is doing for us here in Romans 8, verses 31 through 36. We are called to go to the gospel again and again and again. And here he's going to use a a rhetorical argument. Paul is asking five rhetorical questions. They're rhetorical because there's really no answer that's needed. The, the, The answer is obvious. It is the gospel. And so he's using these five rhetorical questions to demonstrate, to argue the absolute hope and the assurance that we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are unanswerable questions. Last week, we dealt with the first two in verses 31 through 33. Today, we're going to deal with the remaining three. But in the spirit of thanksgiving, and it is a wonderful season for us to give thanks and to Remember what we are thankful for. Uh, Let's observe these wonderful gospel blessings for which we can give thanks in the teaching here in Romans 8 before us. So just to recap, uh, the first unanswerable question that Paul asked here in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you're in Christ, God the Father is for you. He loves you from all eternity, and nothing can snatch you away from that. This fact is worthy of our praise and of our thanksgiving, especially when we fear. It's worthy to be thought about. It's worthy to be sung about, prayed about for all eternity. We give thanks. God is for us. The second unanswerable question, he said there in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son. God gave us the greatest thing that he could possibly give us. He willingly gave his son over to be killed on a cross to demonstrate his love for us. And if God the Father was willing to go to that extent, how can he not, how will he not graciously give us all things, which includes hope in our suffering, calm for our fears, 
our daily bread, assurance of salvation, everything we need, God has given to us in Christ. We can be immensely thankful and grateful to our God because he has met our greatest need in Christ Jesus, salvation from our sin. These next three rhetorical questions, unanswerable questions that Paul will get us to think about here in verses 33 through 36, they're judicial in nature. And so in a sense, we're being brought into the courtroom, into the throne room of God, the highest possible court that there could possibly be. And he asks in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, because the Lord Jesus Christ is our advocate in the court of heaven, there's no prosecution, there's no accusation that can succeed against those who are in Christ. There's no new evidence that can be found. There's no gotchas that can be found to accuse those who are in Christ Jesus. How could that possibly be? How is something that so sure, how is it possible? Is because we are God's elect. Because we are God's elect. There you Presbyterians go again, talking about election. I can't, every time you go to a Presbyterian church, it comes up, does it? Yes, it does. <laughs> and it's, it's not a doctrine that we run from. It's a doctrine that we run to. It's the promise of all promises. The doctrine of election, the truth that God's grace sovereignly reigns over everything in our lives, especially our salvation. Those whom God chooses, they are His and nothing can snatch them out of His hands. Our Lord Jesus makes this claim in our scripture reading this morning in John 6. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The doctrine of election teaches that God did not leave mankind to perish in an estate of sin and misery, but out of His good pleasure from all eternity. He elected some to everlasting life. He entered into a covenant of grace with them to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation. That sounds so good, doesn't it? I didn't write that. <laughs> That's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That is God's good love to us. And so in light of that, who, who could possibly bring an accusation against one of God's chosen ones? Who could come forward and say, God, I know you said this, but I've got something better. Or I've got something that's really going to get them. Who could possibly come up with some evidence to thwart God's plans? No one. No one. The world comes forward. Satan comes forward. Our own guilty conscience comes forward with mountains of evidence to prosecute us. But they all fail. Why? 
How can that be? What does Paul say here in verse 33? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. This is why we talk about the doctrine of justification all the time, because it is the bedrock of our hope. Justification is that wonderful doctrine that teaches us that by God's free grace, he forgives us of our sins and he accepts us as righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Because none of us can go before a holy God and say, I I haven't done anything wrong. I'm good. None of us can say that. But if we stand before the throne and dressed in beauty, not our own, in the righteousness of Christ, we are justified. Oh, Christian, take comfort in that great truth that the only one who could possibly condemn you, the only one who could bring a charge of high treason against you, The only one who has the right and the power and the jurisdiction to declare you guilty is the one who justifies. In Christ, we are declared not guilty. It is God who justifies. The greatest and highest ruler of the cosmos. The one who is the judge He is merciful. He is gracious. He is loving. He justifies those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the truth of all truths. This is the greatest truth that can calm our fears. This is where we can go for assurance, for comfort. This is why we can say that God is our refuge and strength. And so, as you're counting your blessings, as you're giving thanks, Give thanks to God for our justification. That there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we've been declared righteous. There's no charge that can be brought against us. It is God who justifies. The fourth unanswerable question that we find here in this passage in verse 34, Paul says, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now, many of the commentators are quick to point out that this is not really new. It's connected to verse 33. Uh, They both have the same logic behind them. But let's treat it as a new question nevertheless. Because this verse is stating the same great truth that was given at the beginning of the chapter. Look in verse 1 of the greatest chapter in the Bible. There is now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn? No one. Because Christ has rescued those who are His by His death, resurrection, exaltation, and intercession. No one can bring a guilty charge. No one can condemn those who are in Christ Jesus because of this fourfold redemptive work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Do you see the the four bedrock principles of the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ that Paul lists out here? 
is death. By Christ's death, he has conquered sin and death. He has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Every sin that we have committed or will commit, Christ died for us. And because of this, who can condemn? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Christ has died for us. And then there's the resurrection of Christ. Paul says that he, Christ was delivered over to death for our sin, but he was raised to life for our justification. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of our final hope that we will be raised with him forever. And then there's the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was exalted into the highest heavens. He's at the right hand of God ruling and reigning over his church. He is the great king and conqueror. He has finished the work of salvation. And then finally, there's the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is indeed interceding for us. We do not have a Savior who is dead. We do not have a Savior who went into the highest heavens and went to sleep. We have a Savior who is the great King and Judge who is always living to intercede for us. At every moment of every day, Christ is living now to intercede for His elect. We need to think about the implications of Jesus' intercession. I don't think we think about it enough. It means that He's always there to deal with our problems. All the pain, all the suffering, all the consequences of our sin, Jesus always lives to intercede for us. There's no sin in your life that is too messy for your Savior to deal with. I want you to hear that right now. There's no sin in your life that is too messy for your Savior to deal with. He always lives to intercede for us. He indeed now is interceding for us. He has an ongoing ministry with us, the ministry of intercession, because He loves us. So who can condemn us? No one, nothing. Jesus was condemned so that we would not have to be. In Jesus Christ, God the Father graciously gives us what we do not deserve, pardon for our sin. And so the gospel blessing for which we can be thankful for is our union with Christ. In Christ, we have been united with him in his death and his resurrection and ultimately his exaltation. And he always lives to intercede for us. The fifth and final unanswerable question that Paul has for us here in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Who could possibly separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Anything or anybody that we can think of. No one, nothing can stand up against the might of Jesus. No one can pull us away from Christ's love. 
This is why Jesus said again in our scripture reading this morning in John chapter 6. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing or no one of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So to be clear here, in case there's a doubt in your mind right now, in case that gripping fear is really bothering you and worrying you right now, Paul anticipates this. So he gives a list. Raise your hand if you like lists. <laughs> Some of y'all are lying this morning. Raise your hand. Okay. We all like lists. Look at the list that Paul gives us here. And so for those who are, are saying, but Paul, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. Or, or you're thinking right now, preacher, that all sounds awesome, but that doesn't apply to me. Look at what he says here. None of these things can separate us from the love of God. What about tribulation or distress? Or persecution. It cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even when you're harassed for your beliefs in the Word of God and the truths that it teaches. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What about famine? What about when our stomachs are empty? What about when we're not sure we'll be able to provide for our families? Not even starvation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What about nakedness? What about when we lose the clothes on our backs and they're gone? Not even that. What about danger or sword? Real serious threats to our lives. And when I meditated on this this morning, I could not help but think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine, in Israel, Palestine, Gaza. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in all of those places who are facing real threats, real danger to their lives. Paul says, not even the threat of death and death itself cannot separate us from the love of Christ. These are real life things we all worry about. We're all worried about stuff, our, our children, our, our finances, our economy, our politics, everything. We're all worried. Everyone who has ever lived faces worry, faces suffering and adversity in some shape, form, or fashion. And to these things, the Apostle Paul tells us to hold fast to the love of Christ that will not let you go. And I think that's why he puts this very strange verse in here in verse 36. He's quoting from Psalm 42. And, and, I'm sorry, Psalm 44, verse 22. And he, he's trying to, to say this is, this is what it's like for Christians. Most Christians face real suffering. We feel like a sheep lined up in a pen ready to be slaughtered. We, we know that persecution and suffering is going to come. That's what it feels like. 
And so when we're faced with these things, what do we do? Where do we run to hope? Once again, we're encouraged to run to the gospel, to turn to the gospel. We can't be fair-weather Christians. It doesn't work that way. We can't say God is good when something good happens. We must affirm the goodness of God even when suffering comes. That's when it really matters. That's when these promises become real. That's why Paul gives the lists here. And that's why we must run to Christ and be assured of His goodness and His love in all situations. Trouble will come. Danger will come. Suffering will come. Fear will come in all forms. But we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose, even the hard things. And so the gospel blessing for which we give thanks for here is the love of Christ that will not let us go. We are in a season of thanksgiving. We have much to be thankful for. Let us not forget the spiritual gospel blessings for which we can give thanks. Paul gives a huge list of them in Romans 8. And so if you're looking for them this Thanksgiving for your own private meditation and personal worship or with your family, turn to Romans 8. Let me just list a few of them. Here are some things we can be thankful for. Number one, God is for us. God is for us. God gave us his own son. No one can bring a charge or accuse us or snatch us out of the Lord's hands. No one can condemn us because of the work of Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Pray with me, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these amazing promises. We give you thanks and praise for the hope that we have in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. And that along with him, you promised to graciously give us all things, which includes hope, hope in our suffering. Because of our justification, the assurance that nothing can condemn us, and the love of Christ that can never be taken away from us, we praise you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, gracious Lord our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.